All right, everybody, welcome to the first uh, wine-induced <laughs> Innovation Crush episode. Uh, my name is Chris Denson. I'm your glorious host. Is that too big? Is that too big of a, a word for me to use? Glorious? No, I think it's nice. Okay, I'm your glorious host, Chris Denson. And in case you don't know, uh, this show covers all things innovation, marketing, ideas, research, and insights. Um, and today we have an amazing guest by the name of Peter McGraw. Say hello, Peter. Uh, this is your glamorous guest. <laughs> Another G word. Is yes. that where we <laughs> um, And kind of just give us the 101 on on who Peter McGraw is. Oh, okay. So, you know, I, you know, on the Twitter and stuff, you got to say like who you are. I'd like to say yes. I'm a full-time scholar and part-time adventurer. I like that handle. I, I, I like that blurb. I like the false dichotomy. I've, I've been, the philosophers hate it, you know, because they're like, this. you're just slicing up the world in a way that shouldn't be sliced. Uh, and I study what makes things funny. I'm a professor at the University of Colorado and a behavioral economist, and I founded and direct the Humor Research Lab, which we affectionately refer to as Hurl. Yes. yes. This is, you've, you've got some great stories behind Hurl. Um, what is behavioral economics? Well, yeah, so it's how do I right, I don't want to bore people with this, but we like the field the field of economics has kind of an unreasonable set of beliefs about how human beings reason, think about the world. Right. And a bunch of psychologists started pointing out all those ways that humans fall short of these lofty standards. And uh and those either economists or psychology type people have I've earned the moniker behavioral economist. So I'm, I don't do much economic research. I say I'm a behavioral economist because like the average person on the street has a chance to understand what that is. I guess I'm below average. No, 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 no. You, know. <laughs> you do what? You know, like the Freakonomics crowd, yeah, yeah, totally. you know, and predictably irrational. If you read some of these things like behavioral economics kind of ju- well, it's funny because, you know, a lot of people use the word economy in an interesting way. You know, I think most people's ger- general association is finance. Right. Like, mm-hmm. And, and uh, Jordan Brady, who you I think was featured in your book. You yes, he was. Um, yeah. Was also a guest on the show. Shout out to Jordan Brady. Um, but, you know, I asked him what he learned from stand up versus his career in advertising. Mm-hmm. You know what translated. And he said the economy of words. Right. It's the ability to tell a story succinctly, um, whether you have 30 seconds of video to sell a car mm-hmm. or you have three minutes on stage to, to make a crowd laugh um, and how you use those words. So I'm interested in just sort of like, you know, that perception on economy in, in, in the behavioral sense. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think that so the big problem I have is I use a lot of words in my academic life, right? You know, papers are 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 words. Lectures are an hour and 15 minutes. I read minutes. the one on positive illusion, by the way, from like 2003 or something crazy. I tried to read wow. it. Wow. Um, but go ahead. Sorry. I, I just wanted to let okay. you know that I, I'm, I've, <laughs> I've studied the scholar. I'm, uh, I'm impressed by that. <laughs> uh, so yeah. So, you know, and then, but, but now I'm like out in the kind of real world. And how is it that that I can take these ideas, sometimes a little bit esoteric, sometimes a little complex, and make them accessible? Right. You know, even just describing who I am in a way that makes sense to someone who doesn't understand this and not familiar with this world. That's great. What? Um, so the Humor Code is a a book 
It yes. is. Yes. Um, and what what is the? There's a lot code? of them. There's a lot. They're <laughs> sitting on shelves. <laughs> Please <laughs> get them off. <laughs> now, it's. A, I mean, it, I I read Maria earlier. She said, "What is that book?" And I read it to the forward, and I actually saw the word quixotic. In so yes. speaking of the economy of words, it's great. But uh, give us sort of the, <laughs> the, the you know what, what's what can we find inside the humor code? What what have you uncovered in the world? So the the humor code is is a travel log actually. So it's not a, a kind of typical pop science book. It's about two men, me being one of them, and Joel Warner, a journalist, the other one, uh, traveling the world trying to understand this complex, mysterious thing, humor. So we have, uh, well, where do we go? We go to Japan, we go to, to Scandinavia, we go to the Amazon, we go to the West Bank in, in Palestine. We came here to L.A., yep. New York, and uh, other places to, to try to blend comedy and science. You know, two ideas, two things that don't always get along. So I run experiments in Hurl. We go out and meet the characters, the people in the world who are doing comedy for a living. And uh, and we we kind of probe the topic and with the overall goal to try to understand humor. Right. what is it? What is its origins? And and, and maybe even a little bit about uh, how can we kind of use it a little better in our lives? Yeah. It, which you, you told the story, speaking of like how to use it better, um, you told the story about using humor to basically empower people, right? You turn a negative thing into something funny or yes. a negative incident or into something funny. Um, do you find that that's sort of, what's the empowering mechanism in the, in the humor there that, that makes that work? Well, yeah. I mean, so I think the, the thing about humor that's interesting is that it doesn't, it's not always empowering, right? So, for, so a lot of times it's used for evil, right? It's used to ridicule people and make people feel bad. The good side of it, um, although it has the same roots, can be used for good. So the, the idea that, that we explore in the humor code and, and it is the theoretical foundation for Hurl is that humor rises from potentially dark places, from potentially negative things, what we call violations, mm -hmm. things that are threatening or wrong or amiss. But of course, the things in the world that are threatening, wrong or amiss, they don't normally make us laugh. They make us cry. They make us cringe. They make us angry. You know, they create negative emotions. There has to be something else there. And that's the idea that the situation's okay, acceptable, or as we say, benign. And it's these benign violations, these situations that are wrong yet okay, are the ones that we laugh at, we delight in, and we say, hey, that's funny. Well, if you think about it, that's really in some ways a coping mechanism. Right. The things that are the, the, the tough day in traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, can be a source of frustration or anger or it could be a source of comedy. And so taking the thing that's wrong, the bad traffic, transforming it into something that's less wrong. Isn't there, isn't there a breaking point? Like sometimes when you talk about like when I have a bad day, right, the whole mm -hmm. traffic incident, and let's say, you know, the fourth bad thing has happened, right? Your hot dog has just fallen on your shirt. Um, I don't know where I got, I got that example That's from. Eating the hot dogs, the coping mechanism. Hot dogs are hilarious. <laughs> that was, yes, that was part of me trying to cope. But then, like, there comes this point where I go, like, the last thing happens, and I just start cracking up. 
uh-huh. right? I go, yeah. it's like right. it's like I've either I've let go or you know, it's just like it all of a sudden be, has become a funny day. Yeah, that's it's an interesting observation. By the way, sometimes a hot dog is just a hot dog. That's true, right? I think Freud said something. Like oh. that, right? <laughs> um, no, it's not Freudian. Trust me, <laughs> the buns maybe. <laughs> the the uh, yeah, no, no, I think. I, what you're what you're observing so to my knowledge no one's ever done done the research on this but i think this has this I notion, just wrote your next book it, it's it's a very nice idea the so, breaking the humor breaking point <laughs> it it is a notion of absurdity right so why is it that we laugh at things and we say that's absurd so i had this experience um so i work at a university i'm at the university of colorado and uh you know a bureaucratic place a well-intentioned administrator, secretary, assistant, uh, um, administrative assistant, created a full-page color-coded flowchart to help you decide how to go about having alcohol at your university function. Or on your podcast. It was, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's just, do you want it? Yes or no. Right. And then if yes, you have it. But, I mean, it was, I got this thing. I opened right. it up as a PDF. I was in my office late at night and I just started cracking up laughing and I couldn't understand. I was like, why am I laughing at this thing in the same way? I think that, and I think the same process applies to what you just described, the hot dog incident. It's just like, you're like, this is so bad. Like it just, this can't be real. Like this is, this is so out of bounds that you sort of spontaneously code it as not real. Yeah, like the the you're now out of this world. It's it's a situation where you're you just can't believe that you this suspended is happening. the belief uh, it, for a second. Yeah, and and what happens? What that does though is that provides distance in a way that helps make these violations benign. So bear with me for a second. I'm I'm, I'm doing it. Okay, so um, if you th- think about comedic television, yes, okay, let's say uh, cable network, whatever it may be. What comedy shows feature the biggest violations, like have like the worst, the most heinous things happening right. on them? It's it's the cartoons. It's the family guy. It's South Park. And and how is it that they can get away with having just this horrible? I mean, South Park murders a child at the end of every episode, right? <laughs> which the only reason you can get away with that is that these are made up children, Right, they're they're totally hypothetical. No one's really being harmed in the making of this of this show. Right. And Kenny, the murdered child, is the least human of all the children. Like he barely even seems like a person in many ways. Right. So they create such distance that it allows them to kind of pull this stuff off. But I think that like absurdity, this description of like it can't get any worse, you're just like, this can't be really happening to me helps with create this sort of spontaneous sense of distance yeah that's necessary to take these bad things and make them okay yeah because it's interesting you know when you go back like if you tell the story of that bad day a few days later it is it, like it is funny right and you know it's almost like um a vacation you know it's like uh-huh. every bad thing possible <laughs> has happened to clark griswold and yes. his family including the apex of the movie which is they got to Wally World and it was close. It's close, that's right. <laughs> Which to me is like the funniest joke of all time. They're doing a remake of that, no? Uh, I, I hope not. Something that's... about that, some modern day. It's going to be tough to pull off. Like, it's, it's such, like, I don't know. There's certain things you leave alone. Uh, that's my opinion. 
I, no offense to whoever's making that movie. <laughs> I would love to have you as a guest on the show. <laughs> um, why has this become your passion, your work? Because, you know, when I read your title, you're a professor of marketing yes. as well as, you know, uh, the behavioral psychology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, why has this piece of your interest taken off so much? Why did this become the passion point uh, for Peter? Well, you know, so some of it I actually have to attribute it to my training as a marketing professor. So what happened was I, I stumbled on this question about six and a half years ago. And I mean, it's a really compelling question, right? Like, so what makes things funny? Like if you can accomplish one thing in the world, answering that question would be a pretty cool right. thing to do. So I had read around the same time, I had been kind of just considering like, where am I taking my career? I was sort of heading, heading towards tenure. After tenure, you know, you're kind of in this sort of flat spot, like where you can do a lot of things. You have a lot do more whatever freedom. I want to do right That's now. Right. <laughs> you start flipping uh, off Peter, you coming in today? Uh, um, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Not- uh, that's a little more true than you might think, actually. But um, but I had just read this book, Blue Ocean Strategy, and the and Blue Ocean Strategy, the book really made really made a big impression on me. It, it, the The authors of the book make a case for either positioning your product or creating a mark or, or identifying a market that is just blue, as they say, blue ocean, largely untapped. There's almost right. no competition there. And so as I was uh, pondering this perplexing question and thinking about it, I also realized that studying humor not only was important, but also in some ways would be easier than a lot of the other stuff that I was studying because no one in my field was looking at it. Right. And so what were people looking at? Like, what, what they look, they were looking at things like regret and pride and embarrassment okay. and all. They were looking at other compelling emotional experiences, but for some reason, humor had been overlooked, despite the fact that it's an age-old question. It goes back 2,500 years, so sure. Plato and Aristotle tried to, tried to answer it. And I was like, oh, we should do this. This is important. And you have a chance to kind of make a big splash. And, and I mean, studying comedy is a lot more enjoyable than studying regret, for yes. instance. Yeah. I mean, you don't regret it. Not at all. <laughs> I I mean, I'm, I marvel at how, so like six and a half years is a long time, but in academic time, it's, it's nothing. Right. It's, you know, it's a small period of time to be studying something. How much my life is now different as a result of it. Now, have you tied the two together, right? Like a understanding humor, but also coming from a marketing angle and this blue, this idea of a blue ocean and finding a market, you know, where did the two blend? Like, you know, a funny commercial or a a funny tweet or Mm -hmm. whatever, you know, some form of, um, humoristic engagement, (laughs) uh, if you will. (laughs) You like that one? Yeah. I see. Now I don't know what's funny. Um, (laughs) no, but like, how did you, have you tied the two together yet? Yeah. So, so we, we have a, in the lab, in terms of our academic work, we we're trying to publish sort of basic psychology articles, but we're also trying to, we're also publishing in marketing. So there has been some work on humor and advertising and it's not, terribly the the results won't be surprising to someone like you right so it's like humor helps you cut through the clutter it's more likely to be shared with other people um people have a bit better memory for it largely the the beliefs about it are are positive there's a little bit of work that shows how it can backfire on you so for instance 
Like if you if you use unrelated humor attempts, it may distract from your main message. And so so the best the best humorous marketing communications weave the message along with the comedy in a way right. that it's seamless rather than just tacking on something funny just to get people to pay attention. Cause they remember the funny thing, but they they don't remember the brand. Well, I feel like, and I feel like that's also like the, the problem, right? You remember, you know, most things you remember the funny moment, but not the product yes, or not the service. Um, yeah. You remember the celebrity, but not necessarily the brand, right? right. Like this is a constant problem in terms of getting people to pay attention, but then also like, um, getting them to understand the message that you're trying. Has anyone done it well? Like if you, I mean, not to put you on the spot and like draw something up really quick, yes. but no, has, has, has one, you just kicked me under the table. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I like it. Um, no, but yeah. Is there, is there an example that you can think of that has done it well or poorly for, for that matter? Yeah. So I, I'll tell you the, the case study that I think is most interesting. So, um, Imagine a world like a, a world of three different types of brands. There's sort of the funny brand. It's a small world, right? Like Southwest Airlines sort of has that kind of funny brand. Uh, Geico sort of has that kind of funny brand um, where a lot of their messaging is is humor based. And it even goes, uh, you know, it even even pervades the company in the case of Southwest, like, you know, funny flight attendants and things like right. that. Then you have your very serious brands, right? The the Schwabs of the world and the, you know, like this is a very serious thing and we're going to do our best to, and there's very little comedy associated with right. those brands. What I'm interested in are the brands that, that lie in between those two. That is, they're a serious brand, but they, they use humor sort of tactically. Right. And I think Nike is one of those <laughs> brands. And so it's not obvious, right? So if you say, right. is Nike a funny brand? Yeah, that's, a, that's what I just said in my mind. Yeah. And you say, no, they're not a funny brand. But actually, they're sort of like your friend who's typically pretty serious, but occasionally is hilarious. You catch him at the right moment. And Nike's a lot like that. So, so if you watch their marketing communications, you always get the same message from them, which is, we're at the leading edge of technology and that technology is going to let you be the best athlete that you can be. Right. And what they do is they find funny situations at times to demonstrate that particular message. So back in the day, they have a, you can find this on YouTube. It, they have a very funny commercial. It's this uh, a pretty blonde woman. She's in her running gear and she's at some, she's in some cabin and she's like standing in front of the sink, like washing up. Yeah. She's wearing her Nike um, sneakers and she like closes the mirror and there's a Jason character in the mirror and she like screams and starts to run away. And here's a Jason character. He has a chainsaw. And he's sort of lumbering after her. Right. And, it, and you're heading down that path. We've all seen it in, in the horror films where the pretty blonde woman is running away and then she stumbles and falls and then, right. You know, carnage ensues, but not this woman. <laughs> right. Because she's, Wearing her her Nike running shoes, and she trains hard. <laughs> and that's awesome. And you can see where this is going. She just basically sprints into the darkness, <laughs> and and the Jason character is lumbering along and falls out of breath and, right. and gets away. And it says, you know, the the tagline is like Nike, stay alive. And it's a very funny scene. Um, it's very memorable, enjoyable. But what it does is it says, if you use our gear you are going to be the best athlete that you can be. Right. 
And I think that's that's a really nice And you will example. not die. Exactly. Yeah. Is there any stronger a message <laughs> that you could end up having? Well, this happens over and over again. There's a recent um, commercial with Rooney, the, the – Mickey Rooney? No, the uh, what's his soccer, the UK British soccer. No, but, I was kidding, yes. Yes. Yeah. but it has a it has like this counterfactual flashback where he doesn't perform well, and then you see him in his mobile home with his big beer belly and beard and so on. Like you see this world of right, and it's an amusing world to imagine this soccer star in, and then he ends up actually performing really quite well and winning the game and yeah. accolades and all this kind of stuff. Well, do you find like, okay, so you, you look at a big global brand like Nike and you've kind of traveled the world under, you know, the guise of studying humor and why it works. So, <laughs> the scam. The, yeah, exactly. The under, this, <laughs> under this false pretense <laughs> that you were writing, you had the book done already. Uh, is there, you know, because you have to take into consideration Obviously, cultural points of references, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes when you like, oh, you watch you Google funniest commercial on YouTube, mm-hmm. you're going to get some French commercial or right. Czechoslovakian, you know, like, and I'm like, hmm, or it's, it's weird and it's racy and it's like, I haven't seen it before. It's kind of funny. But it, so how much does culture play into just humor in general and or how a brand might interact like the Nike commercial might be very different in, you know, Zimbabwe yeah, or Brazil or something. Yeah, that's right. So, oh, I mean, I think it's paramount. I think I don't think that you can I don't think that you can pursue comedy as a brand and ignore culture. And the reason is that if you if you agree with me that that humor arises from seeing a situation as wrong yet OK, well, what's wrong and what's OK depends on the individual who's doing the perceiving and cultures determine what's wrong and what's okay. And so as a result, if you want to try to make someone laugh, you have to understand their perspective on the world. And so brands that ignore that perspective, whether it be in their marketing communications or in their product innovation or um, in their supply chain or however it is they're going about doing it are going to run into problems. And so one of the things that we've been doing in Hurl is is actually looking at the downsides of trying to pursue comedy. Right. So um, one of the, so I think that, that in general people, brands in particular believe is that, that humor is good and that it should be pursued sometimes for its own sake. Certainly the ad agencies want to pursue it because they're filled with creative people who really, yeah, it's more fun to work on a, on a funny commercial than it is to work on a serious commercial. So they're always selling it. They're always pushing it. But the issue is that, that for instance, when you fail to be funny, you can fail in one of two ways. You can bore the audience. That is there that you create a situation where there's no violation. There's nothing wrong about that situation. So I like to say that's like tickling yourself. (laughs) <laughs> Which right. I do nightly. Yes, and it, it, unless you're special, well, you, did, you did a rat tickling experiment, or did you did you look at a rat tickling? Yes, there's experiment? there's research on rat tickling. That's mm. right, and and um, so these researchers tickle rats. They sort of roughhouse these rats. Yes, and these rats make this sort of chirping sound that is akin to laughter, and uh, and it, you know it fits that idea, right? right. This is like a harmless attack. And they're also more delicious after they after they've laughed. <laughs> after, after you've tenderized them. <laughs> but, well, but the other thing is that, like that's fine. Like it's fine to tell a joke that sort of falls flat. You know, that's that's okay. But um, the opposite of having a joke that's too tame is to have a, a joke that's too risque. 
that is a joke that there's nothing benign about it. It's just violation. Right. That's like akin to on your way home tonight, some creepy guy in a trench coat tickling you. <laughs> yes. Right. Like right. that's funny. That's funny to think about. Right. Yeah, but now. It's not funny to actually. It wouldn't go be through. funny in the moment. So so when brands pursue comedy, when they fail, they can fail in one of two ways. And one of those ways is that you offend an audience and you don't really want to be offending your target market. So you have to really understand your target market and what they find funny. You right. can't just rely on what your ad agency says is going to be funny because those folks, you know, they're hard to offend. Right. But your customer may be easy to offend. Well, there's, you know, it's interesting because it, like I feel like. You know, I I'm, I started my career doing it. Like at age seventeen, I did stand up for probably eight years. I'm there. sorry to hear that. That's fine. No, <laughs> um, so was the audience. It's a tough. It's, it's tough. <laughs> no, it, it was my thing. Was I didn't want to go on the road mm-hmm. as a as a starving comedian. You were, were you living here? No, I started in Detroit, okay. Michigan State University. Right. Um, but no, it's like this. You know, there's this journey of um, uh, of just being in the moment funny mm-hmm. and then belaboring a you know a funny moment so i think what sometimes might happen in the agency world is that you know, Joe's written the script. It's hilarious. Everybody laughed in the room. Mm-hmm. Two days go by. I was like, well, what about this line about the, you know, the grass? I'm like, well, no, it's the grass. And so you, yes, writing is rewriting, but I think a lot of things die on the vine, perhaps I'm mm. speculating because they become belabored when I walk into James, the executive or Sue, the executive. Uh-huh. And she goes, oh, this, you know, and then it's write it all over again. And over the course of a month of developing this, thing the energy is lost behind it i see yeah um it does i mean i don't know if you had any thoughts on that just in general like the moment versus long-term creating funny yeah i mean you know i think i'm not sure that that getting notes on your on your jokes for a commercial is the best way to create good comedy you know i mean really like Unless the key is to just play it really, really safe. Right. And in that way, then it's probably a useful thing. I mean, the challenge, I think the challenge is that you can even get laughs and hurt yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, to use, let's just use this situation. You're, you know, you're, you're out with friends and, um, your friend lets off a big fart. Right. Yes. You start laughing. Hilarious. You're like, that guy is really funny. And then and then you go, <laughs> that guy is funny. you're like, that guy is funny. And you go like that. But there's also something wrong with him. Right. Like, you know, you so. So what happens is there's the attributions. So it's not just the laugh that you're you're pursuing. It's like you want to have a message that's consistent with your with your brand. Right. You want to have the right tone of like, well, what kind you know, like if this were a person, what kind of person would it be? And and then even still, like the, some of the work we've done in Hurl has shown that that like for instance, these there's all these humorous PSAs now, these public service announcements. Right. Okay. Well, they're starting. The reason they're they're pursuing humor is because because humor cuts through the clutter. People pay attention to it. Problem is, if you want to try to tell someone that there's a, a problem is a problem, and you do it by making jokes about it. You're sort of telling the audience that's not that serious. It's not that serious. And so as a result, so so it's like it's just a tough situation, right? Because now you're trying to get the maximum laugh. You're trying to create the right marketing message that says 
says what you want to say about your particular product, the, the argument you're making in your in your marketing communications, and then also that you're portraying the brand in a way that's consistent. With well, that's the, way the thing. Part- I th- you know, I think even in your own demographic, you're like you you can't please everybody, right? Like no. even though Nike knows that runner, or you know, uh, what's the Copa knows that wine drinker from the little plastic <laughs> cup that I told you I was doing something classy for you. Um, but no, it's like you you know the, the this is the, only twelve point seven percent alcohol. I'm sorry, that's, isn't that high? I know that's low, low isn't it? I don't know what wine. Uh, yeah, what's the, what, what is wine? Fourteen. We want fourteen, Marine. right? Wine's normally like thirteen. Thirteen. Oh, twelve point seven. I will round up. Round it up. We'll round it up. <laughs> um, that was your producer, though. By the way, <laughs> just so yes. The people People know Maria better. You can see her hair, though. It looks, it looks She's like, I'm never going to see that 14 guy again, so I'm going to go with 13. Uh, no, but just kind of knowing, like, you can't please everyone, right? It's the same, it's the same way, like, I can watch a... That's, I, I hate to say this. That's a Bill Cosby quote. Is to try to please everyone. No. Is to is to please no one or something like that. Yes, you know well, we're not. Well, let's not digress. The, the, no, the, you're talking about the <laughs> Bill Cosby that we all knew and loved. The, yeah, the old, the the former pudding pops. Yes, it's uh, and, and so I th- I think and that's what and this with anything even if, you know things that aren't humor you you, yeah. you kind of. You put it out there, people are going to gravitate toward it. It's the same way because one of the things I was wondering about just from a psychological standpoint is you know, debating what's funny, right? Mm-hmm. Me and my, my be- one of my best friends, we are probably the silliest duo you'll ever mm-hmm. see in life. Like we'll joke for days and we'll never get back, back on a topic and meander and create scenarios and so on and so forth. But on sometimes we'll go like, hey – you see this thing? It was hilarious. And he's like, that's not funny. Mm. So what what distinguishes those, you know, that what's the mechanism there? That, that Yeah, so that's, so I actually like to say that um, you can never say that's not funny. You have to say that's not funny to me. Because, um, because it is actually the case that the same, very same humor attempt can elicit three different reactions. One person could be cracking up laughing. Another person terribly offended. And then the third saying, dude, that's so boring. Like, what are you talking about? And so, but again, it just depends. And, th- and these people can be from the same culture. It's not just culture that determines what you see as wrong or okay, what you determine to be a benign violation. But it has to do with your own personal belief system, your experiences, your mood, for instance. Right. Uh, and so in that way, like, it's just... There's so much risk and reward that goes along with with pursuing this. Now, I don't want us to just talk about um, advertising. Sure. Because so this blue ocean idea has pushed um, the folks in Hurl to think about humor and marketing outside of marketing communications. So, for instance, we have a paper that's coming out on humorous complaining. If you think about it, really, uh, so Lorne Michaels has this quote that says, that says that comedy is complaining done with charm. Mm. That really fundamentally what stand-up comics do, my suspicion is what you did as a stand-up comic, was you pointed out what's wrong with the world in some way, shape, or form. Sure. Maybe it was what was wrong with you. Maybe it was what was wrong with your family, what was wrong with the government, whatever it may be. And, and you do it in a way that's really entertaining. Well, this idea of humorous complaining is actually a really important one within marketing because you have customers 
they complain. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they complain to you, the brand. Sometimes they complain to each other, you know, over yep. dinner. Sometimes they put it on Yelp, on Amazon, and so on. Well, a humorous complaint uh, may help them cope. I believe that's the case. But it also, because it's attention getting, because it's memorable, because it's more likely to be shared, when you're when your customers are complaining humorously, making jokes about their bad experience, they're they're more likely to have an effect on you. Right. Right. People are more likely to pay attention to it. And so uh, it's much more likely to become I won't say viral, but it's more likely to become a kind of popular. Well, it's interesting. Thing. It's kind of like, you know, I've been lately kind of fascinated with companies abilities to turn negative you know, things into positive things. One, for example, was, you know, an A-frame chalkboard outside of a sandwich shop. And it it said, come on in and try the worst sandwich a guy on Yelp ever had in his life. (laughs) And and like, I wanted to go in and try the sandwich. You know, it was because you like them. Right. Yeah. Right. We like funny people. Exactly. You're like, okay, cool. And and they, they got the joke, whatever, you know, and, and, or you look at, that's, uh, you know, in some ways that's a humorous complaint. Right? right, they're expressing their dissatisfaction with this joker on Yelp in a way that makes you like them. Right? Yeah, <laughs> we like humorous complainers more than than serious. It's very complainers. true. Or you know, there's a. I think every year YouTube does this uh, video series where people walk into the YouTube help desk and they're like, usually like YouTube influencers you you know and you've seen. Okay. And they're complaining about co- like common things that happen on YouTube, like oh my file won't upload, and then you, the, you know the person will like fade in and out of the thing, <laughs> or somebody else will walk in and like oh uh, you're here for the comedy thing. I love your clown makeup. And you're like this is my real makeup. I have a you know makeup advice channel um so they've got all these things that you hear about youtubers complain i came from a, a big youtube network okay. professionally um and so like that idea of taking the the complaint and turning it on yeah, and, and making it, it more enjoyable it. and and so on so it's like and then there's the whole world i'll tell you this there's been no research and this is where i want to head on how to make things funnier right so so we, we're always looking at the consequence, uh, you know, so we look at the antecedents. So what is it that helps make something funny? And if something's funny or not, what are the consequences? But can you use those insights to actually create funnier people, funnier ads, funnier TV shows, funnier YouTube videos, right. whatever it may be? Like that is just, you want to talk about blue ocean. Yeah. No, I hope no one, I hope none of my academic peers are going to hear this because they're like, oh my they're God, gra- there's a great idea. No, <laughs> but, um, but you know what I mean? Like, so if you think about it, like, so you, you were stand up. How'd yes. you get funnier? I'm sure you got funnier in their seven or eight years. I would hope so. How, but what was like, it, no, it was just like the, the repetition, mm-hmm. trying different iterations of things, mm-hmm. growing as a person, right? I think stand up yeah. is really a real stand up is about connecting your experience to an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was, it was just a, a growth pattern, but a lot of it was the repetition and mm-hmm. refining of that's what, you know, the interesting thing about belaboring mm-hmm. humor. Right. And we were talking about this earlier where you, you know, you go see a stand up, do a show and you see him two or three times in the same night. 
it's verbatim inflection, yes. word choice, right. the falling on the stage or whatever the, you know, the thing the that theater. felt very natural yeah. was a hundred percent rehearsed and planned and yes. thought out, you know, it's like actors, you know, you look at Christian Bale, who's a method actor and, you know, had this whole thing about blowing up at the, the, uh, director in his, in his, what was it Terminator? I think it was. And he, he went all berserk and like yelled, Oh man, you got to look it up. Um, but it was, he was in character. Even those things are calculated, right? Yeah. The, every decision, the look, the raise of an eyebrow, or right. it's, you know, this is decision process. That. Yeah. So you're learning to become a performer you're learning what works and so right. on. What I want to know is can science um, – how can science, science supplement that, right? So what are the kinds of insights that you can can provide someone that might cut that learning curve, right? So there's always like the 10-year – to be a comic, you got to get your voice. Hours, you need, you yeah. need your 10 years on stage and all that stuff. Well, what if there was a way to do it in less than that? Using science, right? That's an exciting idea. It's wearable technology, <laughs> heart rates. <laughs> but I mean, I think I think there are those kinds of things, right? Like comics, they have great intuition, but they don't have theory. Imagine you gave them theory, right? Like imagine even just something like as simple as, uh, well, you know, you start by looking for the situ- for looking for something that's wrong or amiss, right? Like if you just believe in a benign violation account. If I'm, I've converted anyone, will that help the writing process? For instance, like you, you'll head down a path much quicker than you would have otherwise. It's kind of like the. I mean, if you, I feel like if you know the principles of a theory, you can get to the end result quicker. Yes, I agree. Uh, it's the same way where you know the first scripts I wrote were absolutely horrible, not okay. content-wise, format-wise, uh, and so I sent out. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I don't know, like a hundred different, you know, packets of sketch comedy that I had written between the ages of 19 and 21 or whatever. Okay. Um, there was one guy who's like, came back and goes, your stuff is funny, but you should go down Hollywood Boulevard and grab a script so you can do the format. Cause nobody would look at the thing. Yeah. Cause it didn't right. seem professional. Right. But the and the so mechanics on. of the funny though, I think could be the same way. Like you said, you, like there's. You know, what are the scenarios that we tend to that we can play with that are funny uh, or that are principle principle principally funny. So I um, I don't I don't want to ruin it. I have I just had coffee with a comedian friend here in town. I'm going to ruin her in the car. No, (laughs) that'd have been nice. Uh, she's she's much less famous than Seinfeld. I'm going to ruin one of her tweets. She hasn't tweeted it yet, so but I'm sure she will by the time this yes. goes. Uh, she we someone asked if we could watch her things while she went outside and make a phone call, and um, so this woman's tweet. She's composed and she's a writer, right? She's a comedian, so she's always writing. She's like, I'd like to see the look on people's face when I say no you know, to that request. Right. And I was like, Oh, that's very funny. Like you can imagine creating a joke around the idea of people asking you to do things that no one ever says no to. Right. And yet you say no in part because it's your prerogative to say, to say no. And so the idea is that she in great instincts has the ability to notice like how to create a moment of tension in right. a way that that's okay to create a moment of tension, right? Like, so when someone says, oh, do you mind watching my things? And you say, yes, I do. I don't actually want to, to do that. Right. That's wrong. But it's 
It's your option. It's your option, yeah. right? Like, you know, in that in that kind of way. And so, like, now what if you can give people that that task as a way to go about starting to identify useful topics, right? So even you think about, go. let's go back to the Nike situation. Mm-hmm. You take a, a common sort of trope. Is that the right word? Use trope sounds word? fine. I, I'll, I'll f- I think that's right. Can we, do you have a fact checker? <laughs> uh, Maria? Trope? Is okay? <laughs> trope is a the word. The trope of like the, the, the pretty blonde woman who falls down, you know, so that, that kind of thing. And you're a like, okay. Damsel in distress. Yes. How is it that we can make her succeed? Right. right. You know, you so you take and how do you f- flip that idea? And so I think that comedy writers have good instincts and good things. But but is there a way to formalize it in a sense that can sort of speed along the process? Maybe you get better ideas, more ideas, et cetera. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and then we have a few more minutes. Um, you tell this story and this I, I love the context of the story uh, or you told me the story. I'm going to see if it's true. But you were hanging out with Mike Epps. And uh, you had a Guinness and then somehow fried chicken entered the conversation. Oh, yes, that's right. Um, And so you dissected the reason why fried chicken is a offensive and still funny at the (laughs) the same time. (laughs) Right, right. So Mike, Mike's doing work on racial humor. He's he's like he has a project that's trying to understand like when is racial humor funny and when is it not and all these kinds of things. And so we were talking about um, fried chicken jokes and why they are funny, why they are offensive and all this kind of thing. And so, so I did a little digging and figured out what is racist about fried chicken jokes. And so bear with me as we, no, we go through. It's, it's really, I mean, it's I was great. fascinated I, I, by this. <laughs> I was like, fascinated, fascinated when you told me. Okay. Yeah. So, so the, I, the, the issue is this is that a fried chicken joke is a put down joke. So it's it's designed to to take a group of people, black people, and say, you're lower class. And um, so there's so first of all, there's a history back all the way back to slave slavery about jokes about slaves stealing chickens and getting caught for it. Um, so some of this is like this, you know, like um, th- this is just demonstrate how desperate right. these folks were. Um, Hilarious, but over time, no, I know, it's, it's, <laughs> no, no. Okay. I mean, they're, yeah, like, and the jokes aren't terribly funny anymore. Right. But if you're a, if you're a white racist, sure, white racist, if you're a racist, especially white racist, a white racist, among the white racists, those are <laughs> hilarious jokes, right? So, but what what happened is over time, um, so so fried chicken is really popular in the black community, has been for a long time. Um, but there's a hierarchy of meats that exists. So anthropologists have studied meat and they can they put meat on um, on these uh, like like a ranking system. So it's not just the meat, but also how it's prepared. And fried chicken falls very low on the hierarchy. And the reason is this is like it's like beef in the United States. Beef is the. Right. Is like the high, the highest is what's for dinner. Exactly. It's like, you know, it's like beef, pork, chicken. Pork comes before chicken? I think so. I'm pretty sure it does. And then also the method of preparation is also part of the ranking system. So roast, like roast beef is Mm -hmm. a higher, is roasting is, is higher than frying. 
And so, so to make jokes about why black people like fried chicken so much is basically to say, oh, they're low class because they like this lower form of meat right. and also form of, of cooking it. Like, I mean, really what it comes down to is like proper people don't eat with their hands. Yes. They don't lick their fingers. Yes, because you were saying that too. So it's on. like it's, it's also the way it is consumed. The way it's consumed it is another form of right of the, Yeah, and so then like so roast beef, you cut it with a knife and you eat it with a fork and so on. Fried chicken, you just, just pick it up and you just. Mm, I mean, I look I, bite I, into I, the juicy goodness. I, I love I love fried chicken. <laughs> I never thought that I was devaluing myself by eating it. Well, it's like one of my favorite reference jokes is Dave Chappelle when he's he's like he's like he was going through all the racial um, beats, you know, of Asians can't drive and so on and so forth. And he goes, he's like, and black people love fried chicken and watermelon. It's like if you don't love fried chicken and watermelon, there's something wrong with you. Like it's <laughs> <laughs> like it's delicious, you know. It, yeah, I mean. It's totally, and you know, if you think about like if you're a poor family, that's you know, it's it's meat that's accessible, accessible, right? Accessible, excuse me. And then it's you know, it's like it's tasty, and you know, I mean, look, I mean, I remember my neighborhood, like people would reuse the grease, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean, that yep. kind of thing. And so it was easy to do. So, speaking of food that's bad for you, mm-hmm. you know, you look at a brand like a McDonald's mm-hmm. or, you know, any sort of fast food organization or something that you just know is bad for you. Red Bull. Right? Alcohol. We all know Red And you see these funny commercials. Um, you see these things. You have an affinity for them based on messaging you've mm-hmm. received. But at the same time, you know it could kill you or it has killed people. Wait, Red Bulls kill people? I don't know. I'm making it up. Uh, <laughs> but uh, besides, My students have tried to kill themselves on Red Bull preparing for my on final Red Bull exams. Or, oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you drive them over ODing. <laughs> but no, we, we know these rules of okay. consequence and how we engage with things. Mm-hmm. Like, what goes into the decision-making process when I'm hungry mm-hmm. and, you know, I I've encountered X number of Burger King messages, right? Uh, and I decided to make that decision anyway. Because, and I, we didn't, we won't have a chance to get to it. But I, I also noticed that you have the moral lab. Yeah, right? you've done your homework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of impressed by this. Thank you. But, it, but, that, and I wanted to get into that because there's a, there is a certain sense of morality that goes into what we all know about certain fast food groups or just anything where you know Exxon and oil. Yes, and we have the right to choose whether we support pink slime at McDonald's. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Uh, but we, uh, uh, Big Mac is delicious. Yes. At the end of the day, like <laughs> they're going to get my three dollars. Yeah, the tough. I mean, the really tough thing. I mean, what you've really identified is that that so none of the things that you just mentioned will kill you in the moment, right? You know, so these are um, so any one um, cigarette or any one Big Mac. Is, is actually really well maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not doing that much damage right it's the culmination of many cigarettes and many uh, many big macs that end up taking its toll and so what what ends up happening is is like all these risks are very distant and we're much more focused on the present and especially when it comes to things that are delicious and provide us a high and all these kinds of things that um that we have a tendency to discount the future. So very simply is if, if you offer the average person, do you want a dollar now or $2 a month from now, they'll take the dollar now. Right. And, and yet the $2 a 
a month from now is a much better value in the same way that like living a long life is a much better value than probably having that right cigarette or that Big Mac in the moment. And so, so you already have that working against you as a human that most people tend to discount the future. They feel very detached from that future person who will do the suffering. And then on top of it, now you have this association that, um, you know, you, you have these childhood associations with McDonald's of like, that's a fun place. I like McDonald's. I got to play there. We had, we had birthday parties there. You have a, an affinity right towards this thing. Um, or you think like, Oh, this, I'm the cool guy, right. You know, drinking this or smoking that or whatever it may be. And so, so those two things come together, uh, to create a habit that is, is tough to kick and that eventually you end up regretting. That's great. Um, this show is called innovation crush. It Uh, is. Yes. Just so you just, (laughs) you know, I didn't know where, if you knew where you showed up to, uh, thank you for the book, by the way. Um, I can't wait to look at it. Can I read the inscription? What did you write on there? Oh yeah. Okay. It says, uh, Chris, may most of your violations be benign. That's awesome. (laughs) That's great. Um, So what are you crushing on in the world that is, you know, that you consider innovative? It doesn't have to be in your field. It can be, you know, somewhere else out out there or it may be in in the the world you play in. Yeah. So I think that the – so I've already alluded to it. So we're headed – so, so for six and a half years, we've been studying what makes things funny. The next six and a half, let's say, mm-hmm. is going to be how to make the world a funnier place. So we're, we're writing some grants and we're putting together some studies where we're going to essentially pit the state of the art, which is, you know, the world of comedy against the state of the art in the world of science right. and to see and create a horse race to see what can make which, which of the two can make funnier people. Um, your work is interesting, right? And it's, and it's very intriguing. Yes, it's incredibly it's interesting. It's very poignant. It's entertaining. <laughs> uh, through your lens, why is it important? Ah, um, well, so, so some of it is, is that people pursue this, uh, they, they pursue this in their consumption lives. So they, you know, they go to movies, they watch sitcoms, they spend countless hours, you know, on Reddit and, and YouTube surfing and finding funny, funny material. They also pursue it in their personal lives. They, they, they're friends, right? So, you know, you, you talked about a friend who you're very clearly close with him and you have a chance to hang out with him when you can, because he, he brings you such joy. You bring him such joy. We look for this in our, in our partners, you know, in our dating life and the people we marry and so on. And then I think the, the, then it starts to get kind of really deep in the sense that, um, that surrounding yourself with funny people finding a way to create a bit of comedy out of the tragedy that comes the natural part of being human, the bad things that happen, having that kind of orientation, understanding humor may actually help us better cope with a, with a tough world, you know, a world with pain, stress and adversity. And so, you know, if if you can find humor in a, a concentration camp in a POW camp, which anthropologists historians have have done it now you know that this is something Hogan's heroes something that yeah has persisted that can persist in even the darkest times if there's some way that we can better understand it and perhaps even enhance it perhaps we can make the world a little better that's awesome uh last but not least uh finish this phrase for me (laughs) okay 
You getting tired of this? What do you what's so? With? I like that you laugh randomly because like the humor guy is just like random laughter. Uh, innovation to me is. Oh, wow. All right. I, so I have to tell you, I'm, you know, I live in Boulder, Colorado, which has become a bit of a innovation I love hub. Boulder. Yeah. And I've had like, I've really been just as a, just as like living there and having friends in the tech community and so on has, I will answer your question, but, <laughs> but it has, it's gotten to me to a point where I've, I've been trying to apply these principles, this, no, this notion of disruption and, and, and trying to find new ways, novel ways to solve problems, I've been trying to apply it to academia. And so I, I just, I always think of the innovation process um, as a problem solving process, really. So like at its core, innovation to me is solving important problems. That's great. That's my answer. Thank you. And it is a great, it is a fine answer. Uh, fine in the sense that it's better than great. <laughs> it is a fine answer, sir. Uh, great answer. Let's see, see the difference. So uh, how can people find you? Where can, where, what, are your, what are your tweet handles? What are uh, websites? All that good stuff. Okay, let's see. So I'm, I'm on the Twitter at Peter McGraw. And I have a website, petermcgraw.org. Some real estate agent in like... Oklahoma or something has dot com. There's also a Chris Denson real estate agent in Atlanta and he had all the credit. Now there's a basketball college student oh, that's like a bad. star. And like uh, and then you can go to uh, humorcode.com and the book you can find it anywhere. You can even get it used on Amazon. I wouldn't mind. I just want people to read it. I don't yeah. care about making money. Simon and Schuster. All right. Ah, the producer just shook her head in, the, in a way that seemed impressed. Well, yes, yeah, she she just does that. <laughs> <laughs> she yawned earlier oh, at, at one point. She's been doing. I was I was talking though when she yawned. <laughs> oh, good. All right. Yes. She's behind my back, so I'm like, I never. <laughs> I had to turn around. Like, what are you doing? Uh, but thank you so much. This has been great. Um, everyone else, thank you for listening, and uh, we will talk to you next time. like listening to comedy try watching it on the internet the folks behind the sideshow network have launched a new youtube channel called wait for it it's got interviews with comedians like reggie watts todd glass liza schleisinger slicing driving friends with her for 10 years one of the funniest people out there and i still have a hard time with the last name liza our very own owen benjamin that's me takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more you don't have to wait any longer. Just go to youtube.com slash waitforitcomedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore. Because it's here. And it's funny. And I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and 3 comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.